Welcome to Langstaff Online. My name is Michael De Silva, and I am your host for episode 15. In this episode, we will be hearing from Stephen Vance, who resides with his family in Toronto and has dedicated much of his life to serving God and local churches near and far. This episode is entitled Safe in God and is taken from Psalm 46. We trust this psalm of lament will provide comfort at this time. Hello, and I'm so glad to be able to share with you today at this uh, difficult uh, time, the COVID-19 crisis. And today I want to share with you a little meditation that I've called uh, Safe in God. And it's based on uh, Psalm 46. And so we'll just take time to, to read this uh, meditatively. And you can just, just enjoy this psalm as we go through it. To the choir master of the sons of Korah, according to Alamoth, a song. God is our refuge and strength, a very present help in trouble. Therefore, we will not fear, though the earth gives way, though the mountains be moved into the heart of the sea, though its waters roar and foam, though the mountains tremble at its swelling. There is a river whose streams make glad the city of God, the holy habitation of the Most High. God is in the midst of her. She shall not be moved. God will help her when morning dawns. The nations rage, the kingdoms totter. He utters his voice and the earth melts. The Lord of hosts is with us. The God of Jacob is our fortress, Selah. Come, behold the works of the Lord, how he has brought desolations on the earth. He makes wars cease to the end of the earth. He breaks the bow and shatters the spear. He burns the chariots with fire. Be still and know that I am God. I will be exalted among the nations. I will be exalted in the earth. The Lord of hosts is with us. The God of Jacob is our fortress. Selah. This is a beautiful, uh, a beautiful psalm to meditate on at this time. And I'm going to begin just by sharing a little bit of the context of the psalms in general, and this psalm in particular, and then we'll look at the three uh, main stanzas and what they have to say to us here today. This psalm is set to Alamoth, which means virgins. Perhaps it indicates that it was sung by female soprano singers, and so you can feel the the beauty and the, and the lightness of this psalm. And the context of the book of the Psalms is very interesting. I'll just outline this briefly and maybe do, do more on another occasion. But the book of Psalms is a fantastic book. It's divided into five sub-books, almost like the Pentateuch that had five books, Genesis to Deuteronomy. So the, the Psalms was its own uh, poetry Pentateuch. And the psalm that we've read is found in, in the second book of the five, Psalm 46. Quite a number of authors in the psalms. Of course, the most famous was David. But then, of course, there's a number, uh, the sons of Korah are, are brought in, whether it was a, a guild after, named after them or whether they wrote some of these songs. Most of their psalms are in book two, where we have read, and of course, this psalm we've read is 
is dedicated to the sons of Korah. Also there were the sons of Asaph, and their psalms are largely in Book 3. And then there was uh, two individuals identified as Ezraites, Heman and Ethan, and they wrote Psalm 88 and 89. And so clearly this shows us that the book of the Psalms was brought together uh, in the time of uh, Ezra uh, after the exile, and that's going to be significant for us. Also Moses and Solomon wrote some of the Psalms, so many authors. There's also many styles of Psalms. Some Psalms are Psalms of teaching, like Psalm 1. Maybe we'll study on another time, but of course in Psalm 1, blessed is the man who does not walk in the counsel of the wicked. And so there's this advice to meditate in the law of the Lord. It's a teaching psalm. Other psalms are, are royal, like Psalm 2. And uh, you'll remember the word of the Lord there. I have set my king on Zion, my holy hill. And God has always been interested in his king. And so many of these psalms are royal, and some of them are messianic about our Savior. But a big bulk of the psalms are actually what's called lament psalms. And these are psalms that start with some sort of a complaint and usually move to praise at the end. The only exception to this is Psalm 88, where the, the entire psalm is a, a lament. And all of this tells us that God is interested not just in our happinesses and our joys, but he's interested in our sorrows. And the psalms give us a way and a language by which we can express this sorrow to God. So some are teaching, some are royal, some are lament, and some are praise. It's very interesting to notice that, um, that this movement of a lament psalm from criticism and complaint to praise also functions within the entire book of Psalms. In the first book of Psalms, largely written by David, there are many, many, many laments of the 41 psalms, 22 of them are these sad lament psalms. As you move through the psalms, though, they get more happy. And by the end, in book number 5 of the 44, there are only seven lament psalms. Most of them are praise and thanksgiving psalms because they're expressing this joy that comes when we focus on God. Probably one of the uh, narratives that was functioning in the Psalms, if you remember what I, I said, that they were compiled in the time of Ezra, and the people of this time were perplexed. King David's throne has come to ruin. What of our nation? They're sad. They're wondering what's gone wrong. And so at the beginning of the Psalms, they're lamenting this loss, and it moves towards the center of the Psalms in a group of Psalms we'll maybe study on another occasion called the Enthronement Psalms in the 90s. And in this set of Psalms, we read things like this. The Lord reigns, Psalm 93. He's robed in majesty. Psalm 97, the Lord reigns. Let the earth rejoice. Psalm 99, the Lord reigns. Let the peoples tremble. And the idea was, was that Israel came to see David has died, but his kingdom has not fallen apart. The Lord, the Lord is our king. So with that background, let's now look at Psalm 46. It seems clear that the context of this psalm was perhaps an earthquake. The, you know, that the water is raging and the earth is giving way. And of course, as a psalm of Korah, Korah knew about this. You remember 
the attack that was made uh, by him and his people in, in the time of Moses in number 16. And of course, the earth swallowed up Korah and his family. And so there's a national disaster that all the people are frightened over. And we're going to come to see why that's so significant in our time of COVID-19 difficulties. The context of Psalm 46, even just to go back to Psalm 45, is, is very interesting. It's a, it's a sort of a royal wedding psalm. You remember how it starts? I address my verses to the king. You are most handsome. God has blessed you. And so here's this foreign bride that is, is being brought into the king's palace. And this psalm is being composed to praise the king. Of course, that was physically true for ancient kings in Israel. But but we know that it's true uh, for us spiritually because our Lord, he is our king. And we believe he is most handsome of all and God has blessed him forever. We've been brought in as foreign Gentile believers into the kingdom of our Lord, Jesus Christ. So the psalm here begins in this time of difficulty and says, God is our refuge and strength. And I want to point out three things here that are very important. The psalm is divided by three uh, silas. Think on that. Verse 3, and then verse 7, and then verse 11. There are three big things that the psalmist wants us to think about in this time. And the first thing in verses 1 to 3 is that our hope, our hope will grow as we confidently focus on an available God in the presence. Selah. Think on this. Our hope in a time of difficulty, theirs was earthquake, ours is worldwide pestilence. Our hope grows as we confidently focus on an available God in the present. There's so many images used to describe God in this psalm. For example, we're told that he is our, our refuge, our, our shelter, our machaseh is the Hebrew word. 20 times in the Old Testament, 12 times in the psalm. Sometimes translated, God is our hope, our trust. And here we have it in this passage, God is our refuge. This is the word that Moses used in his Psalms about God, Psalm 91. He says to the Lord, my refuge, my fortress, my God in whom I trust. And then later in that Psalm, verse 9, you have made the Lord your dwelling place, the Most High, who is my refuge. And you can think of Moses many times in his stress and difficulty. He goes into the presence of God, into the tabernacle, and, and he communes face to face. God was his refuge, and he could go into God. God is our refuge. We can go into him and be safe. But not just as God our refuge. It says, verse 1, God is our refuge and strength. Our refuge and strength. Very common word in the Old Testament, 93 times. And it's a redemption word. One of the early references is in Exodus 15, the great song of redemption. The Lord is my strength and my song, and he has become my salvation. So God is our refuge. 
we go into him, but he's a strong refuge. He is our strength. St. Augustine said it this way, some refuges are anything but strong, so that anyone who flees to them is weakened rather than securely established. But our refuge is quite different. Our refuge is strength. But God isn't just our refuge and our strength. He is our helper, a very present help. Our Ezrath. This word and its cluster words is used throughout the scriptures. One of the most noteworthy references in the early scriptures is this is the word for Eve. She is a help suitable to Adam, and Adam can lean on her. And you see, just like Eve was Adam's Ezra, his answer, the Lord is our answer. We lean on him, just like Adam leaned on Eve. And so Psalm 46.5 says again this, this statement, God will help her when morning dawns. God is our our refuge and strength, we go into him. Our helper, we lean on him. But then the fourth word is uh, also a word for refuge, but it's the idea not just of, of, a, of a refuge, but of a high tower, of a defense, of a fortress. It's the word misgav, 17 times in the Old Testament, and it occurs here in verse 7 and verse 11. The God of Jacob is our fortress. A military word and so and so to defend the city they they build a fortress on a on a high tower a high hill and it reminds us that we don't just go into God our strong refuge we don't just lean on him our helper our Eve but we can get above it all through him with him he is our high tower our fortress and so is it no wonder that verse 2 says, therefore, we will not fear. If they looked at the earthquake, they would fear. And if we read the news incessantly, we may fear. But when, when we focus confidently on an available God in the present, therefore, we will not fear. But not just the metaphors for him, we also have four names of God in this psalm. First of all, God is Elohim, creator God. This is the God of Genesis 1 in the case of Adam. And in his supremacy, he speaks and he creates the worlds. And this is the word in verse 4 and in verse 10. The city of God, be still and know that I am Elohim. But God is not just creator God. He is also God most high. El Elyon. Again, in verses 4 and 7, the holy habitation of the most high. He is the most high God. This name of God is first introduced to us in Genesis 14, where Melchizedek is said to be priest of the most high God. He was living and functioning in a polytheistic society, but he knew this. There is one God supreme above all the other gods. And Melchizedek meets Abraham and blesses Abraham. And Abraham then begins to adopt this terminology. And he says, I have lifted up my hand to, to the Lord Jehovah, God most high, El Elion. 
because our God is not just as Adam discovered Creator God Elohim. He is as Abraham discovered God Most High, Elilah. But the third name for God is in verse four, 7 and verse 11. And he's said to be the God of Jacob. Jacob, of course, speaking of the, the supplanter. This is the, the fleshly carnal side of that man who would later become Israel, the prince of God. And it reminds us that God is gracious to his people in their weakness and frailty and failure. We have been brought into favor with God. He is not just Elohim with Adam and El Elyon with Abraham, but he is the God, not just of Israel. And lastly, this passage reminds us that God is the Lord, Jehovah, Yahweh. Verse 7, the Lord of hosts. Verse 8, behold the works of the Lord. And again, verse 11, the Lord of hosts. And not just Yahweh, but Yahweh of hosts. This is the one who commands the army. All the angels, all of his underlings, they, they follow his lead. He is the leader of a great army. This is the Lord. And so he's our strong refuge. He's our helper. He's our high tower wherever we do not fear. He's our Elohim creator. He is El Elyon, God most high. He is gracious, God of Jacob. And he is Yahweh of hosts. How does it happen? As we confidently focus on an available God in the present, our hope grows. You see, he is present. That's what it says. God is our refuge and strength, a very present help in trouble. Chrysostom, church father, said it this way, God does not prevent tribulations coming, but he is at hand when they come. He makes us tried and tested and provides greater encouragement from the assistance than the pain from the tribulations. This is our God. Let us go into him. Lean on him. Go above it all with him. This is what this psalm declares. There's a, a wonderful legend. I don't think it's true. I researched it, but it's about this very psalm, Psalm 46, when it was being translated uh, into the King James Version of the Bible, you know, in the early 1600s, 1604 to 1611. Of course, it was the same time as, as Shakespeare. And so the legend goes that Shakespeare was solicited to help uh, to, to make the, the translation of the scriptures, and particularly the Psalms, more poetic. And so the legend says that as he was working, he arrived on the day of his 46th birthday to work on Psalm 46. And of course, Shakespeare always wanted a good opportunity for humor. And so if you look at the 46th word from the beginning of this Psalm in King James Version, it's the word in verse three to shake. And the 46th word from the end counting back in verse nine is spear. So the legend goes that Shakespeare sort of uh, inserted himself subtly into the translation of this psalm, Shakespeare. 
probably not true, but what I want to say is, is that God has not inserted himself subtly into this psalm. He has shown himself dramatically, unapologetically, and powerfully as our God. Let us focus on him. But let's come to verses 4 to 7 a little bit more briefly, because in this passage, we're going to have not just that our hope grows as we confidently focus on an available God in the present, that's verses 1 to 3, but now we have that our hope grows as we joyfully focus on an immovable city in the future. Verses 4 to 7 reminds us of Israel's city. It was Zion, Jerusalem, and the point that the psalmist makes is that God is there. Verse 4, it is his holy habitation. Verse 5, God is in the midst, and so she will not be moved. Twice over in sort of the chorus of this psalm, in verse 7, and then again verse 11, the Lord of hosts is with us. And so the city is immovable. What's the result of this? Well, there's a number of things you can see three things in particular, roaring and foaming waters that we saw back in verse 3. In verse 4 have become rivers and streams. They've been calmed because the Lord is near. The Lord is near. I wonder if this time of COVID-19 is an opportunity for us to go deep into God to have solid routines in our life of prayer and fellowship perhaps online and reading God's word. These streams remind me of Psalm 23. He leads me beside the still waters. Have you tasted those streams through this time? I check the news too, but I don't taste the streams as I check the news. And I have enjoyed connecting with my own fellowship through, um, through Google Hangouts and with other fellowships as well. But this here is something very personal. He leads me beside still waters. And there's this quietness, the raging and foaming of the world. When the Lord is present, we can But not just raging and foaming waters that translate into rivers and streams, but an earth that was giving way back in verse 2 has now transformed into an immovable city. And the question now is not have we traced the streams, but are we planted in the city? This is a great motif all through the scriptures. Hebrews reminds us that Abraham, he lived in a tent that was so transient, but he was looking forward to a city that was grounded. Hebrews 11.10, he was looking forward to the city that has foundations, whose builder and maker is God. Later on in verse 16, the writer says, God has prepared for the patriarchs a city. The same motif pops up in, in Revelation, and John has a vision of the climax to which the Old Testament saints were expecting and all their hopes had been pointing. And, and, and John says, I see the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. 
And you know the story. There's the apostles of the Lamb, and there's the 12 tribes of Israel, and all of God's people are going to find their fulfillment in this immovable stand. That's our hope, sisters and brothers. Not just to confidently focus on an available God in the present, our refuge and strength, a present help in trouble, but to focus on a immovable city in the future. The waters are calmed. The earth is steady. But then we have the raging nations. The raging nations, verse 6. He utters his voice. And the earth melts. All through the Psalms, uh, the, 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 the nations are raging. From Psalm 2, the question is asked, Why do the nations rage and the people's plot in vain? And the point is, is they're raging against the Lord. They don't want his control. But Psalm 2 tells us that the Lord isn't bothered by this. He's not fretting. Verse 4 says, He who sits in the heavens laughs. The Lord holds them in derision. God knows what he's doing. Even today. The nations rage, but the psalmist, Psalm 46, says he utters his voice and it's calm. Just like the Lord Jesus did in the raging sea, he said, Peace, be still. So, my brothers and my sisters, let's confidently focus on God in the present. Let's joyfully focus on the changeless, immovable city in the future. But if we're going to taste those calm, refreshing streams, if we're going to stand on the strong and sure foundation and hear the powerful, calming voice, it may sometimes mean that we need to wait. To wait. What does the psalm say here? Verse 5, God will help her when morning dawns. We may not have peace in our society now. We may have to wait. As the psalms say, weeping endures for a night, but joy comes in the morning. And that's what we as people of faith do. But let me just take you just to the last section of this psalm. So I want you to see one last thing. Verses 1 to 3, your hope grows as you confidently focus on an available God in the present. Your hope grows, verses 4 to 7, as you joyfully focus on an immovable, God, an immovable city in the future. But verses 8 to 11 tell us about a quiet focus on an unstoppable this purpose of God will bridge the present and the future. Verse 8, the psalmist says, Come behold the works of the Lord. He has brought desolations on the earth. For them it was an earthquake. The desolation today is, is obviously a, a health disaster. But we as people of faith trust that God is in control. We don't understand what he's doing. But he's at work, even in desolations. So many of Christ's miracles were constructive, but there were a few works of desolation when he cursed the fig tree and when he cleansed the temple. And God works even in desolations because desolation will give way to peace. The best book of the scriptures to see this, of course, is the book of Revelation. 
and all of the desolations, the seals of judgment, the trumpets, the thunders, the vials of wrath, they all give way to the kingdom of our Lord Jesus Christ. And what's that kingdom like in the closing chapters of Revelation? Well, let me bring it together by just reminding you of the Christian trilogy of love, joy, and peace, because it's all there. The kingdom of our Lord to which we are moving with unstoppable purpose, it is peace, it's calm. Psalm, uh, Revelation 21 and 1 says, a new heaven, a new earth, the sea was no more. All that raging sea, gone. Revelation 21 and 6, to the thirsty I will give the spring of the water of life. The raging sea gone. All that's left is the refreshing streams. It's peace. It's calm. But not just peace, it's joy. So, uh, Revelation 21.4 says, He'll wipe away every tear from their eyes, and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain. It's all gone. And why will it be so joy-filled? There's this loud voice, verse 3 of Revelation 21, that says, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them. and They will be his people, and God himself will be with them as their God. Our joy complete with the Lord forever. But lastly, not just peaceful calm and joyful eternity, but love. John says, Revelation 21, 2, the holy city, the new Jerusalem, prepared as a bride, adorned for her husband. It's the love of the bridegroom for the bride. And not just the marital relationship, but the filial relationship. Verse 7, the one who conquers will have this heritage. I will be his God, and he will be my son be at home. Love, joy, and peace are ours forever. How do we take this all in? At the beginning of Psalm 46, the people are speaking in the third person about God. God is our refuge and strength, a very present help in trouble. But at the end of this psalm, God speaks in the first person to us. This is the voice we need to hear. Be still and know that I am God. That word for stillness is interesting. It's the word in Job 7 and 19, let me alone to be slackened. It's the word in Job 37 and 8, to cease, cease from anger. It's even the word used for slothfulness in Exodus 5. The Israelites, Pharaoh says they're idle. God calls us to be still, to be still. And maybe for me, this has been the biggest learning in this time. Just, just a chance to slow down, to be still. A mandatory, silent retreat. Our society is a society that idolizes busyness. David Zoll is the, is the leader of Mockingbird Ministries in Virginia. He says, it's so interesting. We ask one another, how are you doing? And the, the right answer is, I'm busy. If you're not busy, you're doing something wrong. Because here's how he says it. To be busy is to be in demand, to be valued, to be justified. 
It's the new idolatry of our times. Work equals God. But God calls us to be still and know that he is God. It's not just Christian uh, commentary, but I'm thinking now of a secular uh, individual, Jory McKay, a Toronto uh, writer, and here's what he says about it. He says, when you give into this cult of busyness, you give up one of the greatest tools we have for being productive and happy and protecting ourselves from burnout. And that factor is rest. And he traces the research. People that daydream, when you daydream, you're, you're, a wider area of your brain becomes activated and you're able to engage in more creative thinking. People that have, you know, hobbies and deliberately rest. It's one of the most common traits of highly successful artists and entrepreneurs and executives. Interesting. This isn't just Christians. This is secular uh, folks. Research has found that if you can disconnect from work, you'll have lower rates of procrastination and better mental and physical health and less fatigue. But if you don't believe the modern secular folks. What about the ancients? There was a Roman philosopher, Seneca. And he wrote this. He said, everyone agrees that no one pursuit can successfully be followed by a man who is busied with many things. Since the mind, when its interests are divided, takes in nothing very deeply, but rejects everything that is, as it were, crammed into it. There's nothing the busy man is less busied with than living. So, God says to us, be still and know that I am God. I'll close with this. Tammy Whithurst is a, is a Christian from Texas. She's a motivational speaker. And uh, she sort of came to see this a while ago. Her, her daughter wanted to have lunch with her. And she was too busy to arrange it. And she said, she said this, the storm that ranges inside me is shouting, slow down. And if I heed that call, the creator of peace will shower me with a peace that surpasses all understanding. If I just trust him, the fragrance of grace and mercy will overflow in me when I come to peace with being less busy. Maybe you're still working. People in the healthcare industry for whom we should be praying and are praying so diligently are very busy. But if God allows us a season of less busyness, will we take this refrain, be still, and know that I am God? Tammy Whithurst says, breaking old patterns is hard, but God reminds me that I can do all things through Christ who gives me strength. So I hope this psalm is an encouragement to all of us and that we will establish more and more in these seasons of isolation and perhaps less to do that we will take this call from the Lord seriously just a call to go into him to go above it all with him to lean on him and to allow ourselves to be still and to know that he is God the Lord of hosts is with us the God of Jacob is our